Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to our and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? I am a revolutionary. It's about what we didn't do. Amen. Then it speaks to us and the possibility for us as a future person. Because ultimately, our people's future resides on what we do outside of the White House. African descent fairly, America failed. She put them in chains. The government put them on slave quarters, put them on action blo- auction blocks, put them in cotton fields, put them in inferior schools, put them in substandard housing, put them in scientific experience, experiments, put them in the lowest paying jobs, put them outside the equal protection of the law, kept them out of their racist bastions of higher education, and locked them into positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America? No, no, no. Not God Bless America. God... Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Our Common Ground, a higher ground for discourse, discussion, solutions, and ideas. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Talk, talk, that talk, matters. matters. Transforming, Transforming truth, truth to power, power, power. One broadcast, one broadcast, broadcast at a time. And now to Our Common Ground with Janice Graham. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, and I'm very late tonight. I had a pewter problem, and uh, we thank you for being so patient with us for for being late. I've never been late to a broadcast before. Um, had everything all set up, and I turned around, and nothing would happen. Everything was frozen. So I am broadcasting from a new platform tonight. Um, couldn't get the Googles to Google, so I had to switch over to the Foxes so we can fly at our common ground. For those of you who are listening tonight at our common ground, you can join us in our chat room at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG, and we've got a lot, a lot to do uh, tonight. Uh, we do want to remind you that tomorrow, no, on Monday, the nation will celebrate uh, the birthday of Dr. Martin Luther King, and we want to remind you that 
It is a day to serve, a day to commit, a day to remember what this man's life meant in our own lives. And we're asking you at Our Common Ground to live the life of a king. And on Monday, as the nation gathers all everywhere, parades, well, we're not having a parade because we don't have parades in the winter, Um, but there are many events. Make sure that you spend some time with your children, especially. We are not fulfilling our obligation so that our children have historical references in their lives to understand the, the world in which they live. It is so much more important for them to have a core, a center of who we are as a people, where we have been, and where we are today is a reflection of both how far we have come and how far we have not come. So we want to make sure that you spend the time. Also, it was a very, very sad day in black America as we said farewell to that giant of a man by the name of Amira Bilraka. And in the second hour here at Our Common Ground, we're going to spend some time that Sonia Sanchez, I tell you, she... Um, and his son uh, um, really said a farewell. Watching his funeral this morning made me fall in love with being black all over again. Not that I ever feel out of love with us, but moments in which the confluence of revolutionary black culture is on display is so deeply, deeply moving. Uh, So many of the folks that I came up with politically and organized alongside spoke special truths. Baye, Adolfo, Wilson, Asha, Bandele, Lumumba, Bandele, Rukia, Lumumba, Saul Williams, Jessica Jessica Kerr, more. It, it, It did my soul good that the generation that I was born to bear witness to the struggle for revolutionary struggle. Uh, I, I just, uh, Rosa Clemente, and a special shout-out tonight to my dear, dear friends, Sister uh, Marpessa Coupendoa and um, uh, Florence Tate um, and Mae Jackson all grew up in the shadow of this man on a daily basis in the struggle. So today during his funeral, I was so thankful for the technology that we have available to be there, even if I could not physically be there. And it was a glorious celebration of a life well lived in righteousness and courage. And I I, I will admit to you, the tears flowed without shame. You, I, I cannot express to you, as I said to you last week, uh, upon um, talking about his death, I cannot tell you what this man has meant in my life to build the sense of dignity and power and courage that I covet. It is a treasure. I am blessed. Um, uh, so today to be there was just just wonderful. This man lived a life well lived in righteousness and courage, and I, I just uh, I, 
I, I was 18 with fists raised, and his spirit and words taught me to lift only one and to extend the other outward. Uh, the real meaning of power to the people, uh, an eternal ovation to this beautiful man who found refuge and place for a righteous rage. And I, I just kept saying, and I had my grandsons with me and my daughter, and, and, and we all sat around, and they don't know him as intimately in their souls and their spirits as I do. And I just kept saying, rest, dear warrior brother, now rest, I say. And I joined with my friends, Hakeem Adabudi, Mae Jackson, Sonia Sanchez, uh, uh, Ray Winbush, and all those who, Ron Daniels, and all those who loved, admired, and respected this man by proclaiming tonight power to the people and resist. And if you stay with us, you will know exactly what, what I mean. And I know we've got a lot to do tonight. Uh, but I do want to uh, say some words about someone who was also special to me in, in my life, and that is Dr. Alice Moore of West Palm Beach, Florida, a pioneer community activist, died at the age of 96 on this week. And I just wanted to say to my friends down in Florida uh, that even though I was not able to be uh, with you, all of the uh, women and men who grew up with me in Payne Chapel Amy Church, where Miss Moore was so active. Uh, she was a teacher of 38 years in Palm Beach County public schools, both in the segregated and the integrated school system, and she touched so many lives in the community. This woman was untiring, and I'm not going to even talk about she was one of the founding members of the West Palm Beach alumni chapter of Delta Sigma Theta. So let's get started. We've got a lot of people uh, on the boards listening into the broadcast tonight, and I uh, want a shout-out to all of you in the chat room, and if you want to join the chat room, they will be talking. Uh, they don't just sit there. They talk. And uh, we're going to get on with this program tonight. And thank you again for being with us. It's a massacre. Wilmington on fire. It's a massacre. The Wilmington Massacre of 1898 was a bloody attack on the African-American community by a heavily armed white mob with the support of the North Carolina Democratic Party on November 10, 1898, in the port city of Wilmington, North Carolina. It is considered one of the only successful examples of a violent overthrow of an existing government and left countless numbers of African-American citizens dead and exiled from the city. This event was the springboard for the white supremacist movement and established Jim Crow segregation throughout the state of North Carolina and the American South. You know, Wilmington was, was North Carolina's largest city in the 1890s. Uh, and uh, in comparison with other portions of the state, it was a relatively prosperous, prosperous city, uh, well-managed. Uh, but one of the most significant things about Wilmington was that it was a majority black city. 
And uh, in the political climate where you had uh, a fusion party that combined the populist party and the Republican party in the state in a kind of a, in a coalition, um, Wilmington's political leadership was dominated by representatives of the, of the fusion effort. Um, so it was a majority black city, which meant that you had a significant number of, of uh, a significant role for blacks in determining who the office holders were in the city, but you also had a significant number of blacks who actually held office. And uh, one of the most significant effects of the massacre in 1898 was to reverse the black majority and to turn Wilmington into a white majority city and uh, to drive out uh, the, uh, the fusion office holders whether black or white, and, uh, and, and completely changed the political face of the city. Uh, but also it meant that you gave a signal to the rest of the state and the rest of the South that you would not have any significant black presence in the political process uh, anymore. It's a massacre. Well, it's very interesting that although American history I have yet to open an American history book, especially those that would be in K-12 and read Wilmington, North Carolina on any page. But Wilmington, North Carolina, I think, has been left out of the books because it has sort of been whitewashed or whited out. Wilmington was such a place of independence for people of African descent in the state of North Carolina that that story has yet to truly be told. You had a lot of people who were well educated at this time in Wilmington, right before the Wilmington race riot, as they call it, a Wilmington massacre, all these names it's called today, took place. You had people owning businesses in the heart of the city, not off on a side street, but the main drag as we would say down south. Here it was, you had black business next to another black business next to another black business. You have Alex Manley running the newspaper so that there is actually a voice that can go out to people. People can subscribe to it. People who've left Wilmington and are elsewhere can get a hold of paper and know what's going on at home. You have the churches. You have fraternal organizations. You have all of this that the people are saying, look at who we are. And this is not even a whole generation out of enslavement. And so there is a thriving black community going on that is powerful. And so that was not replicated everywhere all over North Carolina. out that he who owns and controls has the power. And so when slavery ended in the 1860s, about 1866, at that point in time, you had, they learned something else from the radical Republicans who came out and said that, you, that black people in America can only be two, two, one or two things. Either you're going to be slaves or you're going to be free. To be free, you must minimally, these blacks must minimally, five million, almost five million blacks must minimally have 40 acres of mule and $100 given to them coming out of slavery if they're going to play this game. Because at that time in slavery, black folk were the primary generators of wealth on the earth. This country had invested over $8 billion just into slavery. That was more money than all the businesses and all levels of government put together. And, they, and, and black folk as slaves, they knew the importance of wealth and owning and controlled it. And they wanted that 40 acres and a mule and $100. And, uh, and Congressman Thaddeus Stevens, Charles Sumpkins, and Benjamin said that on the floor of the United States Congress in the 1865 Civil Rights Law. 
give black folk 40 acres of mule and $100. And Andrew Johnson came and he became the president after Lincoln's assassination. He killed the bill. They came back again in 1866 again and said, black folk have to have resources to be able to compete. It's a massacre. Someone can steal dead. So what was the use in a park for us to just sit and remember? I want to remember, but I also want to progress to the future. It is also important that as they come up with the list of requirements for reparations, that they don't be too quick to look for a financial payout. Instead, they should look for unlimited access to certain services and total control over certain industries. When you talk about reparations, because the cost of the trauma was so extensive and unending, the payment that is to be received, your compensation, should also be excessive and unending. You see, what if black people never had to pay a property tax as a result of having their property taken? That's perpetual forever. What if our children automatically had free access to the universities in the state? Forever, that's perpetual. What if we were given exclusive right to certain industries within the state? What if we were given exclusive control over certain lands within that city? That's perpetual. Be careful yeah. about money. Money runs out. Blood everywhere, a massacre. Women is on fire. Wilmington on fire. And now to our common ground with Janice Graham. Tonight. We are going to be talking about the documentary film, Wilmington on Fire, a full documentary which details a little-known bloody massacre against a black township in North Carolina in 1898. The film features interviews from historians, authors, activists, and actual descendants of the victims of the Wilmington Massacre of 1898 and it will bring us to an enlightened discussion, again, about reparations in this country and the significance, uh, economic significance, of the domestic racial terrorism against African Americans. Our guest, Christopher Everett, who is the filmmaker, a historical author who wrote about the history of this township Wilmington, North Carolina. And returning is our common ground voice economist, Dr. Wen William Sandy Darity, uh, who was part of the conferencing report, North Carolina Wilmington Race Riot Report, Economic Impact and Analysis, and we're going to be talking to all of them. Our number is 347-838-9852, and when you call in, when we begin to take calls, don't forget you have to select one after you call in. Christopher Everett, I have been so excited to bring you here to Our Common Ground to meet with our audience and talk about this film. How are you, my brother, and thank you so much. Hey, how are you doing, Ms. Graham? I'm, I'm excited to be here. Tonight. Y'all listen up. I'm Mr. Graham. <laughs> um, we do want you to tell us about the genesis of how you began to look at this film, uh, at this issue, 
at this historical event and how it came about you decided to make a film. And tell us a little about uh, your history as a filmmaker. Okay. Okay. Well, you know, I started out doing film. Actually, I started out, you know, as an actor, I'd say probably about 2004, about 2008. You know, I was about like 100 pounds lighter back then, you know, in shape and everything. And I was doing the whole acting and modeling thing. And then just kind of, kind of got interested in doing directing and writing my own projects and producing my own projects. So about 2008, I did a little small documentary project. It was like a fundraising documentary for a historical African-American boarding and day school in my hometown of, North, of Lawrenburg, North Carolina, called the Lawrenburg Institute. It's been open since 1904, been in the same family for like three generations. And as I was interviewing um, the grandson of the founder of the founders of the school, he was telling me how his grandparents really, a lot of people down in Alabama didn't want, really want to come to North Carolina, you know, around the 1901-1902 period to Lawrenburg and just that whole area back then because of, they were just saying all type of racist stuff was going on. It was just real bad. I'm like, okay, what was going on in North Carolina around this time? So I started researching that, and I just kept running into what happened in 1898. So, you know, started researching about the 1898 massacre and all that stuff, checked out the, the Wilmington Race Ride Commission report, started studying that, got a few books on the topic, and I was like, you know what? I want to do this as my next project. You know, I want to do a full-length feature documentary on this topic from a black perspective, and that's where we are today. Mm-hmm. Now, um, it is uh, clear that uh, this history had not been known previous to about 2006. How yes. could that um, be? It was, well, I know Larry can probably tell you a little bit more Um, when we talk about this in the film as well, um, it really became, I guess, known nationally and across the state, really, I guess, about 2006 when they did a big race riot report. The state of North Carolina decided to do that. But you had, you know, different politicians and community activists who was really pushing that issue hard of doing an actual study of the race riots, its impact on the African-American community and just across the state of North Carolina in general. But it was also brought out, I guess, in about the 1970s when you had the Wilmington 10 incident um, in 1971. And um, Larry, he, he wrote a book about the Wilmington 10 and how that really and how it was kind of connected to 1898. And when the Wilmington 10 incident happened in 1971, that kind of got people's eyes looking at Wilmington. Okay, what's, what's really going on with this city? You know, what's all this racism and all that stuff going on? And then that's when people started talking about 1898 and how this, just this whole aura of racism has been existing in that city since then. Well, um, when you talk about doing a film like yeah. this, many people do not know what kind of resources go into, into doing uh, such a film. Yeah. How did you begin to even get people interested who might 
uh, be looking at uh, investing or uh, other kinds of um, ways in which, in, how do you put a film together? <laughs> well, it was kind of like I pretty much started putting this whole concept together, I'd say about 2011. Pretty much got out a notebook, you know, a notepad and a pen, you know, and wrote down. First of all, I wanted to write down the concept, came up with a title, and who actually wanted to be in the film and what the film will pretty much consist of. Then I had to reach out and find, you know, some camera people, um, sound people, editors, and all of that, producers who might be interested in the project. So I reached out and, you know, just researching and saw this guy named Larry Thomas, you know, was on the show tonight as well. I saw him on YouTube interviewing one of the direct defendants. I'm like, oh, okay. No, he's very knowledgeable on this topic. So I reached out to him and reached out to a few other people and said, hey, you know, I'm doing, I want to do a project on 1898. You know, I want to do something especially dealing with the issue of reparations because no one has really has done that before. And also from a black perspective. You know, he was loving it. He wanted to be down. So we just started you know, me and him pretty much kind of pulled our resources together, pulled our connections together, and we just started filming. Just started filming, um, contacted Mr. Darity from Duke University. He wanted to get, you know, get involved in the interview for the film. Just started contacting and hitting up people. And Larry had a, a wealth of people that he's already, you know, dealt with over the years because of his organization, you know, that's actually working on trying to... Seek reparations for 1898. So let he me put me in contact with a lot of people, historians. Yeah, let me introduce Larry Rennie Thomas. Right. He's an author, radio announcer, and activist in North Carolina. He's the founder of International Organization for Compensation and Reparations for the Victims of the Wilmington Massacre of 1898, um, and the author of the book that tells the story of. Um, the 1898 massacre in Wilmington. Larry Thomas, thank you so much for joining us on our well, common ground. You. Good evening, sir. Good evening to you. I, well, I, I'm thoroughly enjoying you. your program. I like your intro. Very oh, effective. thank you. Uh, I really apologize to all of our guests for being like, I don't know. Uh, uh, I was here minding my own business. Um, uh, and I'm I'm scared to breathe hard because I'm using a browser that I never use for this broadcast, and okay. I don't want everything to go fluey. Mm-hmm. But, Larry, let me ask you. Now, you are a native of Wilmington, North Carolina. I am, yes. Yes. I want to and of all, I know Wilmington very well, by the way. Really? Really? Okay. Yes. What do you know about Wilmington? Well, I attended summer school for six years at Palmer Institute. Okay. Yeah, and and um, you know, I was one of those kids coming up from Florida on the train every summer, coming into Asheville uh-huh. and getting a ride. Yeah, very <laughs> um, historic school. Yes, mm-hmm. and um, um, also I had a friend, uh, a colleague, many uh-huh. years ago who actually bought a farm in Wilmington and moved from Boston uh-huh. uh, to Wilmington to his farm, and yes. I visited him there. And really? he a- actually had horses and goats. Okay. <laughs> but l- let's talk about, uh, I want to talk about Wilmington then 
at yes. Wilmington now. Well, what I was born in, was born in Wilmington, and growing up in Wilmington, I always knew there was something strange about the place. I mean, it was just, there was just something in the air. And I've had people who have visited me in Wilmington, and right away they will say, there's something not, something's not right with this place. It's just something not right with it. But I, was, I wasn't aware of, I wasn't really aware of 1898 until I was in grad school here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and I was studying the Wilmington 10. Around 1978 was my first year in grad school, and uh-huh. I kept bumping into 1898. This 1898 kept kept coming up, and when I did the the first time I read something on it, it was a, there was a book by a white fellow named Harry Hayden, and the book was called Rebellion of 1898. And I thought I said, oh, black people rebelled, but it was the white people who were rebelling against the black uh, dominated. It really wasn't a black-dominated city government at that particular time. But they had reversed the roles and made it seem as if the blacks were controlling the city. Wilmington at that time was considered a mecca. There were black people moving from all over the country, moving to Wilmington because they heard you could make it there. And it was a very strong, strong upper-back middle class, so strong that they had white and black, white maids and white butlers, (laughs) if you can imagine that. But I I, uh, I have been approached several times by people who wanted to do a movie, and Chris was the only one who really, I think, had balls. You know, <laughs> I, Chris yeah, I mean, does got, have he, balls when you're talking about this kind of history oh, yeah, and, no correcting the, and, yeah. and correcting. Let me yeah. bring um, our dear friend, um, Dr. William Darity in. Dr. Darity is a professor of African American African and African American Studies and Economics and the chair of the Department of African American Studies and director of research network on racial and ethnic inequalities at Stanford. Dr. Darity, Sandy Darity, thank you so much for being with us again on Our Common Ground. I'm I'm thrilled to be back on. Uh, I'm actually at Duke, not Stanford. I visited at Stanford for a year. Oh, that's right. I didn't yeah. know you had, had returned yet. Duke University. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm back. <laughs> Sandy, I, 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 are you a native of North Carolina? Yes, both of my parents are from North Carolina. My mother wow. was, uh, grew up now, in Wilson, North Carolina, and my father in the mountains in a town called East Flat Rock. Okay. Yeah, so. Um so I've been I'm, I'm, I'm a I'm a, I'm a non exotic southern black person, you know. <laughs> well we thank you for that. <laughs> we thank you for being so. Yeah. Uh, Sandy, how did you get involved? What okay, I wanna talk about the report that you did when you got involved in the economic analysis report on this so the, massacre. The, the state of North Carolina finally did a report on the Wilmington riot in the mid-2000s uh, or so. And I was asked to help prepare uh, the section of the report that was devoted to the economic cost of the riot. What What did people lose? Particularly, uh, black residents of Wilmington as a consequence of the of the massacre. Mm-hmm. So uh, that that's that's how I got involved in this process from this angle. Uh, but I've also been doing a substantial amount of work over the years 
on the case for reparations for African Americans. And the Wilmington riot is one instance of white terror activities that can be cited as a, as a basis for uh, reparations efforts. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I, you know, the minute I saw saw your face in some of the uh, marketing materials on the film, I knew exactly why you were there. But I didn't until I actually researched it. I didn't know you had been involved in this economic impact analysis just around this particular um, uh, incident. Now, yeah, so I, pre- you, I prepared the economic uh, impact analysis in conjunction with uh, Todd Hamilton, who is a sociology professor at Princeton now. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of things about this incident that, for most people who hear about it, who have not heard about it, um, kind of their minds kind of go sizzle in the night. Uh, one of them is that there is barely a mention in any of the history books about this incident. Larry, you mentioned that there was some some person who had written a book, uh, a, wh- a white person who had written a book that got your attention. Yes. Yeah. Well, John o. Franklin uh, has written something about it in From Slavery to Freedom. I think he has a paragraph in it, uh, Dr. Franklin did. But this, mm-hmm. it was supposed to have been a secret, but, but we all know there is no such thing as a secret. The secret is there is no secret. So if you <laughs> do some research, you will find out that there's a vast amount of information on it. Uh, there was also a centennial done in 1998 on UNCW's campus, University of North Carolina in Wilmington, uh, commemorating. There's also a book uh, called We Have Taken a City by Dr. Leon Prater, who is deceased. He happened to be in a in a, a big band. He was a trombonist in a big band and he decided to go back to school. He taught at Tennessee State. But no question, that is a definitive work on uh, the race massacre. He actually calls it a, a massacre. And he yeah, actually gonna... published the book hoping that it would gain much more attention than it did. The man actually had two strokes trying to publish the book. But it was supposed to be I was going to add that the, the, the riot has been long embedded in black folk culture, right. just like the knowledge that Strom Thurmond had a white child. Okay. Right. So... Um, uh, you know, one of the earliest discussions of the riot appears in Charles Chestnut's novel, The Marrow of Tradition, where the main character is patterned after a physician who was in Wilmington at the time of the riot, Dr. Thomas Mask. And there's an excellent discussion of the parallels between Mask life and Charles Chestnut's disc- uh, portrayal in Sheila Smith McCoy's book, When Whites Riot. Uh, I also think we should mention uh, Tim Tyson and David Soselsky's book, uh, which was published, I think, in the late 90s, Democracy Betrayed, uh, which is essentially a study of the massacre. Um, I will say, you know, one thing about that, though, they incorrectly characterize Wilmington as the only municipal coup d'etat in America's history. Uh, That's not true. There were municipal coup d'etats directed against uh, black political engagement dating from Louisiana with the Cushada massacre in the 1870s. Yeah, that's right. Well, Tulsa's after. Tulsa's after Wilmington, but. Colfax. uh, Colfax. I'm sorry, Colfax, Louisiana. That's right. Yes, yes, Colfax and Cushada. Yeah, both of them. Yeah. 
Well, you know, you mention it as um, something that is part of folklore, and I think that there are many, many communities, for instance, until the film Rosewood, many African Americans were not aware of that film. Uh, There has not been a major film about the race riots in Oklahoma City or the uh, the massacre in Tulsa, uh, Oklahoma. So, um, I I mean, I I lived in a a city in the South uh, that was actually, uh, the black community was actually burned down because um, the East Coast Railroad um, moguls, wanted the the island that the black people lived on and so they just simply burned them down gave a carnival passed out tickets to all the black people the black people went on to the mainland and um and while they were on the mainland their farmlands and their homes were being burned down and once it was burned down then uh henry flagler who built the Florida East Coast Railroad began to seize that land because the land had been abandoned because the people had no way of reclaiming the land. And that island is now known as Palm Beach, Florida. Yes, yes, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Henry, Henry Flagler uh, also... Uh, bribed the state of Florida's legislature into changing the law so that he could divorce his wife who was institutionalized. I mean, uh, Flagler is, you know, the classic robber baron uh, of yes. that period. And and it's his fortune that was transferred to the Keenan family, yeah. who, uh, who have been uh, a family that provided a significant amount of uh, endowed funds to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, but one thing that's interesting about the Keenan family is that the father of William Rand Keenan, Buck Keenan, was on the back of a cart driving around Wilmington mm-hmm. with a prototype machine gun uh, right. shooting black people during the massacre. Right. Some of them in the back. Yep. 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 Yeah. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, uh, let's talk a little about uh, the film and what people can do to support it, how it's being distributed, when will it be finished, and and, and some of the people who appear uh, in in the film. All right. Well, you know, we did a uh, – we just recently finished the Kickstarter campaign. Um, it ended on January 2nd, and it was just really just to raise funds for post-production expenses because we pretty much got a, a pretty good solid editing team out in L.A. that's going to do some post-production work for us. You know, we didn't meet the goal, but, you know, we start actually editing next week. And it's looking good thus far. We have a whole bunch of people featured in it, such as Larry Thomas. We have Professor Darity, actual direct descendants of the victims of the massacre, um, Dr. Claude Anderson. I think, I think a lot of people are familiar with his work. You know, the author of Powernomics, Black Labor, White Wealth, he's in it. We have Queen Quet. She's the chiefess of the Gullah Geechee Nation. We have Dr. Umar Johnson. Um, a lot of people in the conscious community are very familiar with Dr. Johnson. 
um, his work, you know, with psychology and African-American history. We just have a, we have a whole bunch of people in, in this project. We have about, about 18 strong interviews. And everyone did a great job. It's like each person could actually have their own documentary about 1898. <laughs> you know, so the editing process is, is, is kind of hard, but that's, that's what you kind of want as a filmmaker. Pretty much everyone really holds down their own and provides a wealth of knowledge and, and insight towards the project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have known uh, Queen Kuet for over 20 years, and okay. I was so pleased to see her. Uh, yeah. And and the problems that they're having in her uh, yeah. nation right now, uh, Gucci Nation, uh, around um, land grab. Uh, So, you know, and one of the things I want our audience to know, this uh, film uh, also features Dr. Lewin Manley. Um, He is the grandson of the newspaper editor and owner Alex Manley, who was a prominent black figure in Wilmington and was forced to leave Wilmington in 1898 after his newspaper press was burned down during this uh, particular um, Riot. Yes. I call yes, it we have, uh, uh, massacre. <laughs> yeah, we have uh, Dr. Manley's in it. We also have a lady by the name of Faye Chaplin. Her her great grandfather. He was one of the one of the most. He was one of the wealthiest black um, black men in Wilmington mm-hmm. back then. Um, her great grandfather was Thomas C. Miller. Um, Thomas mm-hmm. C. Miller had the, pretty much the only pawn shop in town. You know, he was a realtor. Had a lot of land. Um, he had. Lots and lots of acres. I've seen some of his his records, and this this man had land all over Wilmington. Um, pretty much, he was he was a, a prominent businessman in in Wilmington, and he was ran out of town um, mm-hmm. as a result of the massacre. And no one really knows what happened to all his holdings or properties. But you know, really? kind of, you know, and that's what we're going to discuss in the film. We kind of have a, I guess, a, a insight of what happened. So we found with this film is kind of interesting because we found some new stuff that really uh-huh. a lot of people haven't seen yet. We kind of found some some uncovered uh, materials, you know, letters that really haven't been touched or, mm-hmm. you know, found. So, you know, we're going to be sharing these things and a lot of letters from Thomas C. Miller that really hasn't even been published by the state of North Carolina, but uh-huh. we're going to be publishing them in the film. So. Now, can people still um, help support financially the build uh the completion of this project uh not necessarily we're working on that aspect now on wilmingtononfire.com okay. we're trying to we're pretty much working on the website now where people want to you know donate to paypal or something but what really what people can do is just just share the page uh, we're on facebook uh facebook.com slash wilmington on fire and also share the um the twitter page at wilmington1898 you know, we just want, you know, the film and this history just to be known everywhere. If people just, you know, like the page, share it, because we're constantly doing updates on there, you know, showing footage, clips, and all of that. If people mm-hmm. just get behind that, you know, join the groups, join the pages, and share them with everyone they know. And that would really, really help us out a lot. Uh, the uh, question I want to ask you, uh, Dr. Darity, Professor Darity, Sandy Darity, <laughs> is uh, in your report, 
give us an idea of what the economic impact was. I mean, what did this, what did the black economy lose as a result of this massacre? Uh, I know we lost newspapers, we lost businesses, we lost homes, beautiful homes as I understand it, uh, some grand homes. I know in the Sticks massacre in Palm Beach, Florida, my grandfather lost 125 acres of pineapple and avocados. Mm-hmm. Now, can I yeah, sell so you all some avocados and pineapples today <laughs> at 125 <laughs> acres? I think so. Yes, yes, yes. Um, yeah, so, so what we're really talking about is a um, – a forced redistribution of wealth, and that has ramifications for the types of wealth inequalities that we observe today between blacks and whites in the United States. Um, you know, in addition to the, uh, the the loss of businesses, because there was a decline in black businesses in Wilmington in the aftermath of the riot, uh, the way we can determine that is we can compare the 1897 and the 1900 uh directories of business censuses for the city. Um, And so um, there was a decline in black businesses. There was also a shift in their location to less desirable sites in the city. Um, And then, of course, there was a, a massive loss of lives, which is typically grossly underestimated. I think if you go through the state's report on the Wilmington riot and you just count up the number of folks who uh, are identified as having been killed in the process, you get a figure that's close to 200 people. And I suspect the numbers were higher than that. Yeah. But, uh, but you know, typically when you look at historical reports on the riot, you get reports that indicate approximately 20 people might have died. Uh, yeah. Numbers are substantially higher. And there are clearly not only emotional and affectional losses associated with uh, with the loss of lives, but there's also uh, economic losses for families that uh, have lost a loved one. Well, let me ask you, you and I have had uh, a numerous uh, discussions about uh, two things. One, the viability of reparations uh, for descendants of slaves in America. And the other is the viability of our faith, of our believability that we are due. When you were working with the North Carolina legislature in putting together this report, was there an occurrence of uh, discussion about repairing the damage, the economic damage done to these to that community, because this was essentially a township owned and governed mostly by black people. Well, uh, was there I'd, a discussion? Yeah, I'd like to defer to, to to Larry on this one because he was a member of the commission, I believe. Uh, uh-huh. So, I'm sorry. No, they didn't. They didn't. I was blacklisted. They didn't want me. You on were blacklisted. <laughs> I wonder why. Okay. Yeah, right. No, they didn't want did, me on the. Did, did they at some point interview? Town hall meetings, and I, 
I raised my hand and I said, well, no one's talking about compensating. And I don't like to use that word reparations, reparations because that's a boogie, boogie word, boogeyman. Well, but I think the people should be compensated for their losses. Yeah, it's not, yeah. They sustained the loss. You know, it's, it's like restore a part of their body that was lost. Yeah, so I like the yeah. word compensation. But when I brought that up, uh, it was eventually put on the recommendations when the commission issued its its final report in 2006. Yeah. But no, I wasn't but, on but, the commission. But nothing, nothing has been done with it. No, no. Right, Matter of fact, right. they, okay. they haven't, and what they haven't dealt that, with only, only, only one of the recommendations, I think. Right. right. Yeah. And what year was that? 2006. Uh, of, the, of the town hall meetings? Oh, uh, of the, I'm yes. Sorry. Uh, they took place, I think, a couple of years, maybe three years before the actual report. The report came out in 2006, and I think the meetings took place around 2003 or so. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, yeah. and do you think that this film is going to be able to, to lend some weight on yes. re You see, the thing is... Absolutely. Uh, uh, and, and I want to uh, shout out to... Uh, Queen Kuet, who is in our chat room, and for those of you who do not know her, she is Gulagichi Rhythm. And um, here we have a continuation. We're not going to even tonight. I am not even going to go talking about the five different incidents of terrorism against black children and black people in this country by under law. We're not going to talk about that right now. Maybe maybe I won't be able to contain myself in the second hour. But um, how long are we going to allow the issue of the indebtedness that this government has to terrorism? I mean, uh, one of the things that Dr. Umar Johnson, and you're going to hear some of this um, as I go into break, says about this, this was a, essentially, it was a government-sanctioned massacre. Am right. I right? Did I get exactly. right? Exactly, yeah. yes. Yeah. And if that is true, it means it was a military, and he says, Dr. Johnson and I agree, that it was a military operation. Wipe out the damn black people because, you know what, they're taking what, what ought to be ours. Yes. Well, they, they wanted to restore back place. the old South. That's what they wanted to do. Restore, right. restore the old South. And that's what they did. They wanted to, they wanted to wring the life out of these people so yes. that they would have to go into servitude. Right. And the ones that that weren't that they knew weren't going to go into servitude. And I'm not right. trying to tell you a story, but I know the story. The ones that, that weren't going to go into servitude, they told them to get the hell out of town die, and don't come back. Well, they put them on a train and ran them out yep. of town. If, if they didn't kill them. Right. Yeah. Yes. right. Yes. They actually escorted them to the train station and put them on the train. Thomas C. Miller was, was walking down the street. They grabbed him and put him on a wagon and tied him to the wagon, put him on the train. And he said, what did I do? What did I do? I'm a tax-paying citizen. I'm a good citizen. They said, well, you're black. <laughs> you were born black. That's what you did. You're Negro. black, and you can speak 18 words of English. Yes. And that's the Negro. only, that's the criterion. And he was pure um, African, too. Thomas C. Miller, uh -huh. he wasn't a high yellow. He was pure African. <laughs> <laughs> it, 
Larry, tell us about the people who stayed, who remained. Well, that's one of the things. I'm, that's one of the points I make in my my pieces. Uh, it's called the true story behind the Wilmington Ten. It, it left an intellectual, economic, political vacuum in Wilmington. See, you ran ran away the intelligentsia, so you don't have really anything to work with. I've I've been on the front lines for so long trying to get people to understand. Uh, what the ramifications of 1898 and the, and the damage that it did to the city, and they look at me like I just landed from from Mars. <laughs> they don't they don't want to do anything. Matter of fact, if you start talking about 1898 in Wilmington, most of the blacks don't want to talk about it. It's like an ostrich with with his head stuck in the in the in the, in the hole. They don't oh, want to talk. Oh yeah, I, they don't want to hear about, about it because they think they think Wilmington is cool. They don't think there's anything wrong with it. So uh, I've been on the front lines, lady, <laughs> almost all by myself. That's why I'm so happy that they came. Well, and then the Negroes get me. very angry with you yes. when you want to talk about it. Exactly. Yeah. I, I read a bookstore, a black bookstore in Wilmington, and I put a week on the door. you might as well get ready to be run out of town. Cause <laughs> I told him that. <laughs> like, I've been, I've been to Wilmington a lot, you know, just to... Just in a gallery, out. like certain archival stuff. But when I'm there, I'm kind of like an in and out type of right. thing. I don't really let no one book I'm there, nothing, you know. I'm in and I'm out. So I'm there really a lot, but a lot of people don't know that I'm there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, um, because what Larry's but, talking about is he's true. It's, it's right. It's, he's right on the plenty about the mentality of, you know, certain, you know, just that whole city, the mentality of it. He, he's yes, right there's no intelligentsia there. Yeah. Period. You can forget that. That's not going to happen. Well, you know, there there probably is some that they characterize themselves as intelligentsia. Exactly. But one of the things that I want to get to is that is there a question of whether or not um, people from the outside, led by people from the inside, uh, can begin to bring leadership on the issue of, I like the word reparations, because it really means so to repair <laughs> what was destroyed. Right. Um, but they don't, think they, they don't think they need to repair anything, because they don't think that, if you admit to being repairing something, that means that you did something wrong. You follow me? So they don't think they did anything wrong. You know, they were upholding the old South. That's what they were doing. And they even had uh, uh, black folks, African Americans, who helped them do that. Chris mm-hmm. talked about always, But isn't that always the case? Yes. We're always running around in a circle at the ne- Negropeans. Um, <laughs> but this, but it is really uh, embodied. There is an embodiment here, Sandy. Sandy, help me out. There's an embodiment. It really oh. doesn't have. It doesn't. It has as much to do with every African American in this country as it has to do with the citizens of Wilmington, North Carolina. Yes. Yes. Uh, Don't follow particularly, me. Particularly, I, I mean, you know, even though you know, I I dispute the notion that Wilmington was the only municipal coup d'état. Uh, that doesn't diminish its significance. I mean, that really was the the very end of any uh, effort to democratize America. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it really was. 
you know, for, and for was, the and it was a, for the it rest was, of the as, uh, Jim Crow period. Yeah. yeah. As they say from the American Revolution, it was a shot heard across the bow of every ship that might try to sail in this entire country that had black bodies. Um, And one of the things, Christopher, you do in the film is you underscore, well, I haven't seen the film, but uh, one of the things in telling the story about what is being covered in the film, you underscore the idea that this was um, a massacre that really began the rollback of the um, post-slavery reconstruction period. Yeah, it really was. And, you know, when we talk about in the film, you know, when we're done with it, actually we should be done editing and everything, i say probably about May, and we're going to be trying, you know, releasing that around May. But in the film, you know, we kind of go back also to the Civil War. Because when you look at the massacre and the people who were actually involved, the main players, majority of them were actually, you know, actually fought in the Civil War for right. the Confederacy. Right. You know, so just that it was just that whole, you know, that whole mentality of the South and the Confederacy, you know, losing the war, and and we all know that, you know, black soldiers during the Civil War had a had a big role in the North winning, you know, the Civil War. So it's yeah. always been that hatred. You know of of African Americans, and they you know they just saw the the right opportunity. And also the, one of the guys we have in the film, um, Kit Chatfield, he's done a lot of in, um, in independent research, and he talks about how you know Wilmington, it was uh, uh you can kind of tell why it was chosen to do this because it, it's an isolated place. Right. It's kind of isolated now, but it was way more isolated back then because you didn't have all the all this means of getting in and out the city like that like you do now. Yeah. So it was very yeah, but it was but isolate. it was a port city and so yeah, it was significant yeah. in that respect. It also had the largest yeah. population of any city in North Carolina at the time. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And see that's yeah. the thing. I know like when I talked to somebody they didn't want me to kind of put them on camera or whatever. They talked about some of the stories they heard, you know, their great grandparents stuff happened. And they were talking about just a rumor that was kind of passed down to them right, is right. that, you know, it was that that you know, since they became, you know, eventually became the majority black city, right. that it was like a rumor that African Americans was actually thinking about trying to run for the mayorship in a few years down the road. You know what I'm saying? And they were actually thinking about trying to actually really gain full control of that city. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Well, but, we've you know, got to take a break. You know, and when we come back, we're going to take some calls from you at 347-838-9852 because what you gentlemen just discussed really talks about uh, there is a history from the time of us Africans being brought to these shores by import uh, that the people in control, the people in power, and the people with the um, economic wherewithal have always felt a threat. You're listening to Our Common Ground. If you'd like to join our chat room, it's www.blogtalkradio.com backslash, that's to the right, OCG. I'm Janice Graham, and we'll be right back with our guests talking about the documentary film Wilmington on fire. Up until Dr. Prather wrote his book, 
what happened in Wilmington was called a riot. In other words, uh, black people ran amok in Wilmington and created a situation where that's the furthest thing from the truth. Welcome to a nightmare, blood on the ground, rifle blast along, he barks the bloodhounds, can't scream, shook, shadow of the feet by the door, just yesterday, I was at my uncle's store. The Wilmington victims, the blacks who suffered as a result of the race riots of Wilmington 1898 are owed compensation. Their descendants are owed that compensation. Why? Because that was a coup d'etat. That Wilmington race riot was the first and probably the only time in American history where a municipal government was overthrown by the citizenry. You've never had that before. It was a coup d'etat. Coup d'etats are military. So since the government was changed... So I'm asking you for the truth. I know the truth. I know enough. So what I'm asking you is, what is your endgame? This is our common ground. Broadcasting bold, brave, and black. Stay with us as we examine and explore Black America, a state of emergency. I'll add this to it. What they do, they pick up and they find this is not a, a knock on education. You can be book educated. You can be, not, you, you, I won't call it culturally smart, but you can be educated and you can be successful. And still you will be ignorant to your history. And those are the people they seem to get. And those are the people that they seem to have gotten and indoctrinated from the very uh-huh. beginning. And it seems to me that you find it more when you, sub- you are subjected to military service because what they do, they strip you of your individualism. And they tell you that you are a part of a collective. But then you have those who come out of, who emerge from the military system, and they go on to be policemen, and they have that same mindset in that in that environment, and they become, you know, a product of that environment. And it seems that all and the only people they run into these these conservatives, these African American conservatives, are well-spoken people, well-educated people, but they simply are uh, dislodged, separated from the suffering of their own people and what their own people have been through. You have them out there talking about blame yourself if you're not, if you aren't rich or if you don't have a job. <laughs> well, they, that, that's because they are, they are so rigid in their talking points and they're so committed to their talking points. These people are sabotaging this country. Nothing comes to a sleeping but a dream. Nothing comes to a sleeping but a dream. The Alpha Show. Drilling down. Just damn. Urban Progressive Political Talk Radio. This is Alpha, hosting the best of pushback talk radio. The Alpha Show. Only at TruthWorks Network. Fridays, 10 p.m. Because our society is only as strong as all its individuals. 
The United Negro College Fund has helped educate thousands of doctors and researchers, but we need more. Thousands of architects and engineers, but we need more. Thousands of teachers and biologists, but we need more. And when disease, injustice, pollution, poverty, and countless other problems threaten to pull us apart, we had better educate every single person who has the potential to solve our problems. And to educate more people, we need more of your help. Give to the United Negro College Fund. With so much at stake, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. The IRP Six Story, an American dream turned nightmare. What the federal government wanted in a software package and customizing that for them. I mean, we were, we were catering. I don't think you're going to find another company that's going to cater any software package to that extent. We were trying to do our best to make sure we gave them the best software package we possibly could. I mean, so it just seems ironic. You're, you're bending over backwards to make sure that everything works and that you have the best software you can have and then you get ready. Well, and you have to go back to the fact we have made numerous trips to the Department of Homeland Security, uh, ultimately, ultimately leading up to the point where they had actually took numerous quotes from us for different component modules of the software, leading up to a $70 million quote uh, to, to be uh, put into the 2005 budget. So, and then all of a sudden, it's, it's February 2005. All this stuff is so ironic. It's February 2005. We're getting ready to go into the DHS budget, and then all of a sudden, we get raided. And it's just, even to this day, it's very frustrating with all of the changes we made, all of the modifications that we made to the software, that even to the point of taking DHS recommendations on our fully functional client service. Next week on Our Common Ground, the case of the IRP6. Next Saturday, January 25th, I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. We hope you'll join us speaking truth to power and ourselves. For the Wilmington race riot, as they call it, a Wilmington massacre, all these names it's called today, took place. You had people owning businesses in the heart of the city, not off on a side street, but the main drag, as we would say down south. Here with words, you had black business next to another black business next to another black business. You have Alex Manley running the newspaper so that there is actually a voice that can go out to people. People can subscribe to it. People who've left Wilmington and are elsewhere can get a hold of paper and know what's going on at home. You have the churches. You have fraternal organizations. You have all of this that the people are saying, look at who we are. And this is not even a whole generation. This is our common ground. Thank you for joining us tonight. Transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Stay tuned.
Our Common Ground with Janice Grant. Our Common Ground. And we thank you for being with us here at Our Common Ground. This is not Janice Graham's Common Ground. This is Our Common Ground, a place where black truth is held in sanctuary. And thank you so very much for being with us. We want to remind you that we are on Facebook. We are on Twitter. We are on Pinterest. We have websites, www.ourcommonground.com, Our Common Ground hyphen talk.ning.com where you can get our program guide and I am talking to my therapist about why Our Common Ground has so many websites and please do not forget that we have some fine programming over at Our Common Ground sponsored network, TruthWorks Network The Alpha Show, Friday 10pm Advanced Urban Political Talks Radio and on Wednesdays at 10pm Soulifier with Dr. Matthew V. Johnson, where he sets your soul on fire without religion. I'm Janice Graham, and thank you so very much for being with us tonight. We're talking about the documentary, full-featured, full-length film, Wilmington on Fire, with our guest, uh, Christopher Everett, who is the filmmaker. Uh, the historical author, Larry Rennie Thomas, and the economist, Dr. William Sandy Darity from Duke University. And we thank you, gentlemen, for being with us uh, tonight. Before we went to break, one of the things that I did want to talk about more is this whole notion of the myriad. I mean, there have been no reparations, no compensation, uh, for Tulsa, for Rosewood, there has been no compensation for Oklahoma City, for uh, two or three of the same kinds of incidents in Texas and Georgia, and, Flo- and uh, in addition to Rosewood, other communities in Florida where black people began to settle and to create lives for themselves at the end of slavery. We ought to be concerned. You know, it's almost like, Sandy, you know, you can help me out here. It's almost like you owe somebody some money and they were supposed to pay you four months ago, but they keep coming back and asking for some more money. (laughs) But they don't mention the money that they owed you and were supposed to pay four months ago. Is that a good analogy? that's a pretty good analogy. I, I think, uh, you know, I do want to I do want to quibble a little bit. I believe there was some compensation given in the Rosewood case, yeah. but it was modest. Yeah, uh, um, yeah. but but in, the form uh, in of all what? the other in all the other instances, I'm not aware of any kind of compensation that's been provided to the to the descendants of the victims. Uh huh. In the Rosewood yeah. case. Uh, what do you recall as the, the form of compensation? I think there were monetary payouts to some of the descendants. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think that happened during, uh, I think when Bill Clinton was in office, actually. Really? Because I, I didn't so. hear that. I had it, was, it, was, it was actually conducted by the state of Florida. I mean, it was, it was yeah. the state of Florida that, that did this. 
North Carolina has never it provided. It certainly wasn't while Rick Scott was the president. I mean, the governor. It was the governor. No, no, I suspect it, it wasn't. It must but, have been when Christie happen. was the governor. Yeah, um, but I, you know, but in North Carolina, not only you know, one the Wilmington riot is one of the most grievous instances, uh, but we also have the whole history of racialized eugenic sterilization in North Carolina, yeah. and uh, and no compensation has been provided to those victims either. In fact, one of the victims said, "Well, I think they're just waiting for us to die out." Right. Yeah. So, uh, so I I think your analogy is quite apt. Uh, you know, there's there's a bill that has been due for many many years, and it's never been paid. Right. Mhm. Mhm. Um, Chris, Jennifer, let me ask you where you plan on uh, rolling out this film. Uh, pretty much, we're gonna, um, you know, like I said, we're gonna have this thing ready to show by May, and we're gonna. Um, we're working on actually trying to do like a little theatrical release throughout throughout some theaters in North Carolina, and we're mm-hmm. also uh, I know me and you discussed some things possibly bringing it up there to your area, but I've been getting hit just pretty much like all over the country. People from Chicago, um, Tennessee, Portland, L.A., San Francisco, even over in England, a few people over there say, "Hey, you know, when the film is done." You know, we'll pay for you to come bring the film out here, come out here. So a lot mm-hmm. of people are really, really, you know, really, really want to see this film and want to, you know, learn the information, and, and they're really, you know, supporting what we're doing. So we're going to pretty much bring this thing everywhere. Um, we're going to have it on DVD, digital download. Uh, mm-hmm. we're, we're just going all out with it. Now, I don't know how it works with things like Hulu and Amazon Prime and, you know, um, Netflix. But uh, one of the things that um, my passion about this film is that history matters and that I think that uh, telling this story will ignite – our people's interest uh, to a certain extent in looking at um, the folklore that we don't know about, as you mentioned, Sandy, that this was folklore and, uh, you know, it was people sitting on their porches talking about it. I mean, people are still sitting on their porches in West Palm Beach talking about my mother talked about it uh, two days before she died. She was... Wow. Um, telling her part of the history. And and also, um, it gives people an idea to be, to be outraged. I would like for this show to be an I, something that happens every Saturday night, uh, for people to become outraged, because I think that when people begin to look at what we ought to be angry about in, in some fa- factual context, that they might do something. Larry, as a historian, as, as an author, did you expect that in your book? Yes, absolutely. I sure did. That's why I wrote it. Uh-huh. And, and Sandy, when you were writing this report, did you expect that black people would get a hold of the report and say, my goodness, 
this is where our our wealth has been lost. Well, I, I was hoping people would recognize that, but I'm not sure, you know, that <laughs> that, that that actually took place. Well, I'm pretty sure because if your report came out in 2006 and we still have black people who are sitting by and 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 hoping that nobody brings it up. Uh and well, that, before you can find the report. Uh you can just uh-huh. go to Google and type in Wilmington yeah. Race Right report. Uh, it's, the report is it's right online. there. It's online. Report, yeah. Yeah. The, whole, the whole report is online. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. 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 Free yeah. You can print it out whatever you want to do. It's all good. You know, and, and one well, of the things that makes this documentary kind of interesting is that I just didn't want to give a history lesson. History is important, but I also wanted to, and that's why we had to, I kind of had to extend production a little bit, is I really wanted to show people how the black community in Wilmington is still affected today. You know, we, we also uh-huh. want to show a lot of things that's going on in, in this city today for uh-huh. African Americans uh-huh. and uh-huh. just that whole disparity of wealth that's 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 alive and well today, and also the the issue of gentrification in a lot of the black areas, such as Brooklyn, Castle Street, and all those areas. I, I, I say that we have gentrification by land grab, we have gentrification by law, and then we had gentrification by concrete barriers caused by all these highways that went down the East Coast called 95 that divided and destroyed black communities. You're listening to Our Common Ground. If you've just joined us, our number is 347-838-9852. And we have contributors um, to a fabulous uh, film that is going to tell our story in the way that it needs to be told. We've got a North Carolina caller, 910. You're on the air with Christopher Everett. Larry Thomas and Dr. Sandy Darity. Thank you for your call. I respect you. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Greetings. I'm calling from Wilmington, North Carolina, to be exact. Whoa. Uh, I want yeah, I'm calling from Wilmington. I'm gonna give you a story. So very much for joining. Brother Brother Larry Brother Larry is being kind of modest tonight. Let me give you a story. <laughs> I came to Wilmington nineteen years ago. I walked into a bookstore on Baycross Street. Saw this tall brother in there, Brother Larry was sitting there. And I told him, I asked him, what's wrong with this city? And he gave me a manuscript and told me, go home and read it and come back. I went home and read it. And then he sent me down to the library downtown to pick out some books. And myself being a community activist, I was like, what's wrong with this city? And after reading the manuscripts, and studying 1898, I began to understand. Brother Larry was one of the few people in this town that would talk, I dare talk about Wilmington. And when Wilmington became popular, when, when 1898 became popular conversation, I watched the powers to be, being UNCW, being the commission, being the city council, take 1898 and make a joke, because what we have now is six pillars that fit, six mm-hmm. pillars. That's all we got. Compensation coming out of this commission, we went to town hall meeting after town hall meeting. We put money behind a North Street project. We put money behind a Castle Street project. Mm-hmm. And what we have now in Wilmington is still nothing 
and still a community that's disenfranchised. Mm-hmm. It hasn't changed. So when you talk about compensation or reparations, it has to happen not yesterday but today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It has to happen. Hey, this this all. Hey, this, this brother Dawood. You know who this is? <laughs> yeah, hey, hey, uh, Miss Graham. Uh, Dawood's in the film as well. He he really breaks down, you know, what's really going on in in Wilmington today. He's a, he's a community community activist there. This brother works hard. Well, we and really everything. appreciate you joining us tonight, and yeah. you've made some salient points. You know, it's interesting that we talk about the massacre of 1898, the massacre in Springfield, Illinois, the massacre in East St. Louis, Tulsa, Rosewood. But there are some communities and cities in this in this country where black people don't have to worry about massacres because they're killing themselves, number one, and number two, they come to a place to die. Now, that's the uh, Republic of Boston where black people come to die. Uh, and and that's not retirement. <laughs> so um, I really thank you for for your comments, and and I'm hoping I really do hope that this film will ignite people's imagination about what must be done. I mean, well, how many times are we going to sit back? And 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 it's not just about what is in our past history. It's in our present history. Um, the, the, you know, we just saw the the film Fruit, Fruitvale Station. We just went through 12 years of slave, and I was crazy as a as a, a donkey who had lost its tail for at least 24 hours after I saw that film. As sure. much slavery history uh, that I have read, but. At some point, we have got to understand, folks, that this is the truth, and it is our truth. And we are obligated to act in a way where we claim our truth, where we resist, as Sonia Sanchez said in, um, in, um, so, so eloquently in the funeral a celebration for Amiri Baraka uh, in her uh, great ovation of him. So, um, Dawood, I, I, you know, there, there are probably a lot of people who said, oh, I'm not going to talk about it, not on a film. You're going to have me on the film talking about it because I'll get fired. My house will get burned down. Well, the house is already burning down. Right. That's what we have to understand. Uh, we're well, let me go show to... you how eighteen. Let me show you how eighteen ninety eight is still playing out in Wilmington today. Mm-hmm. When you talk about us killing each other and our violence, they'll use everything we do to their advantage. This last year, we've watched the crime and gang violence increase in Wilmington. Supposedly, right. now. Gang violence, supposedly gang violence, supposedly increased in Wilmington. Through that initiative, they turned around and gave a half a million dollars to the police department, a half a million dollars to the sheriff's department, only to find out that what they did was arrested a few gang members, locked them up, released a snitch report, and put them back out on the street to increase violence. But yet we put a million dollars into a police force to lock people up. 
Wilmington is a city that needs to be burnt down. Oh, yeah. Right. And Brother Lyad then told me to get out of here, but I keep saying Brother Lyad. I don't know why. We hope you will stick in there. Brother Dow, thank you so very much for calling. Thank you so much. Peace and blessings. Peace and blessings to you, sir. Uh, we're going to go to 704. You're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you for your call. Oh, thank you, thank you. Um, hi, um, I'm calling from Charlotte. You know, I'm a, a good friend of Mr. Everett and everything. I know him back when we went to college together, and I just wanted to let him know that I'm very proud of him, and this film is great. You know, that last caller, that was pretty powerful, what he said, and, you know, I am in full support of Wilmington on Fire. And I just think it's wonderful how he's bringing awareness to the subject and just black history all together. And I think it's great. And I just want to tell him, you know, just keep up the good work. There you go, Christopher. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and and (laughs) you know who this is? (laughs) That's awesome. It's no problem, man. And just, you know, just keep it up. Well, we thank you for your call, sister. No problem. This is the kind of... That this kind of support is what has brought about greatness in our community. That people stand up and stand behind and hold the sky up for people who do good. Well, I hope that you will... um, Join us each Saturday night, next Saturday night, here at Our Common Ground. We're going to be visiting with uh, two of the partners at IRP6, uh, the six men who were indicted, uh, a software company. You should read the report. Go to IRP6.com. And um, the supporters for Just Cause, Just Justice for uh, those brothers, and it is an uh, unbelievable story. Um, <clears throat> let me ask you, I want to go back to uh, Sandy. Dr. Darity. Uh, how do we begin to put together a ledger of appropriated debts before this country? I mean, we don't have people in our Congress the, the 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 black caucus they're not talking about reparations except for Elsie Hastings um how do we even begin to do that and what is the most efficient and strategically correct form of compensation and reparation uh, well in my work i've talked about what i refer to as a portfolio of reparations So um, I think that that would involve coming up with an estimate of what the total is and then coming up with a strategy for payout. And the strategy for payout would include not only um, cash payouts, because I I do believe that any kind of compensatory program should have direct payments to to African-American descendants of the enslaved population and the population that was subjected to Jim Crow. But we could also have 
funds that were set aside for certain types of programs, like uh, the provision of funds for uh, going to college or uh, a fund for economic development that would permit people to either uh, purchase their homes or to start up new businesses, small small business enterprises, uh, with with resources from from the reparations uh, project. So I, I think that's that's the way to do it. Um, but to come up with a, an estimate of the total amount, you'd, you'd need what I like to call a bill of particulars. And that's uh, all the kinds of uh, the costing out of all the kinds of injustices and losses that were inflicted on on Black Americans over the course of the years in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm we, actually we trying to do exec- that. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. We we no. You go ahead, and I I want to interject something uh, that's more contemporary uh, okay. about repairing. Damages yeah, I'm, I'm, and I'm actually trying to construct what you're referring to as, as kind of this ledger uh, in, a, yeah. in a book project that I'm working on with my, with my wife, uh, which is which is tentatively called "From Here to Equality." Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, um, I, I, you know, most most people can't seem to get their ha- heads around uh, what we mean when we talk about reparations. They would say, oh, the black people will go spend the money on um, Lexuses and whatever. I mean, that's the kind of attitude I think most people have, most black people have, the average black person has when they approach um, the issue of reparations. There is another part of it that is very disturbing, and that is that we have grown to believe that we should be shame about something that is given to us. So that's how we don't really understand the the, the concept of debt. Yes. So something that's given to us because of something that is owed to us. Oh, yes. Is 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 not the same as something just simply being given to you arbitrarily. A- absolutely. <laughs> right. Let's right. go back so, to our phone. Uh, and and I I would add that there are other groups that have had injustice claims that have translated into reparations, right. and they don't feel they don't seem to feel ashamed about how having received this type of compensation. So I'm not really sure what the issue is on this one. I think that you see it <laughs> yeah. in the pathology of um, of um, that collectively so many black people share, and that is their worth, self-worth. Let's go back to our phones before I get started on that one. Eight four three, you're on the uh, air. I respect J- Janice, you. I, I'm actually yes. going to need to exit, but thank you very much for having me on this evening. Thank you so very much, and thank you for your contribution in this project, Sandy. Um, okay. We'll be thanks, in touch. Sandy. Thanks, yeah, take thanks, care, Larry. Thanks, take thanks, care, Mr. Darity. All right. It's good, good to talk to you. Right. Yeah, man. Right. Thank you. That was Dr. William Sandy Darity of Duke University. He is also the president of the National Association of Economists, in case you all want to know. Okay. 843, you're on the air with Larry Thomas and Christopher Everett of Wilmington on Fire. 
Well, how Hunter tell him to do this evening? <laughs> I'm sure. Hey, what's up, Queen Quet? Queen! No, Hunter doesn't know that with me. Who else going to crack a deep like this show with Hunter Tiller from We Have Yawn and North Skakalaki and all the rest of the place? <laughs> how y'all doing this evening? All right. All right, it glad is, to glad to be here, and I guess it's divinely ordered since one of your your film counterparts, cohorts, or however you want to call us, fellow collaborators and conspirators, I've been told, uh, had to leave at the same time that you picked up my line. But I definitely want to salute Brother Christopher for putting in all the work that he has done to unmask for a lot of people what had been done to our people over all of this time because I know that the first time that I ever made a trip to Wilmington, North Carolina, and even tried to point out to the people there that they were Gullah Geechee, uh. that was like I had been speaking another language, and I actually was speaking to them in English at that point. Uh. So it was uh-huh. like, what? Because, and then because the, the you, nation and yeah. those of you who, wait, wait, let me let me introduce you. This is Queen sure. Huet, uh, who is the queen of the Gullah Geechee people, and, 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 and your nation reaches from Jacksonville, North Carolina, to Jacksonville, Florida. Correct. Is that correct? Correct. Right. The, the Gullah Geechee Nation goes from Jacksonville, North, North Carolina, Carolina, to Jacksonville, Florida. Exactly. Right. It takes up and, all of and, the sea islands. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then and the, and the inland that by in 35 miles. Mm-hmm. The, the, the groups that live in South Carolina uh, are called Gulas, and in Georgia, Geechees. Again, that was that's a ploy by outsiders. That had nothing to do with Geechees doing that. Oh, okay, okay. That and, entire and, thing was done to psychologically separate. Mhm, mhm. Um, you taught me a lot. You taught me so much in our days of Afroam. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm, 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 mm-hmm. I'm ready to come down there and retire. <laughs> I gave well, up my you don't medicine. want to go to Boston? You're, you're afraid of Boston? <laughs> hey, listen, if I get off this plantation, I'll never come back on this plantation again. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to take off running, huh? <laughs> I've been running you know since you the day. I, I've been running since the day I marched on in here. But, um, Queen Quet, uh one of the things that I am just hoping – and we're going to have to have you on to talk about what is going on um, in um, in South Carolina specifically uh, about oh, yeah. the land grab by by law. You see, people, you have to understand so much of this is done under law. Right. So, but see, and, this is the critical. Re- that's the critical reason I called. Because the reason that people in North Carolina did not link or did not connect or wouldn't do it publicly, what they would do is after they thought others in the meeting were leaving, if they recognized that they were Gullah Geechee, they'd stay after. And then they'd say to me, well, you know, my people migrated up here, so I know where Gullah Geechee. But they were intimidated to say that in an audience of others in the city of Wilmington, okay? And then the thing is, when I started going there, it was for the benefit of our people of Wilmington to be a part of the human rights movement 
to protect not only their current rights, but to deal with these issues that are being presented in Wilmington on Fire and their land rights that were a part of this entire process. And so when we start delineating things, we don't separate anything in the Gullah Geechee Nation and talk about an issue in South Carolina. No, it's an issue in the Gullah Geechee Nation because the land grabs you're mentioning are legally being done in Florida, in Georgia, in North Carolina, and South Carolina of the entire Gullah Geechee Nation and have been done for years because of the same psychological separation. If we continue to talk about things in isolation, calling one group Gullah, one group Geechee, and another group just black, we got a problem. You're not the same as me. I don't have to talk to you. This issue is not yours. If I say I'm North Carolinian, I don't have nothing to do with Georgia's issue. Again, we're separated. I don't have nothing to do with you. This issue is not mine. It's all the same issue. But if you isolate it and compartmentalize it the way that the Negropeans, as you mentioned earlier, and the Europeans have done, then we will continue to have places, as the other brother said, that need to be burned down because of people being displaced put into conditions of disenfranchisement and therefore having the psychological problems that come along with that. And so this is something that has been a healing journey as well, us being on this human rights movement for all Gullah Geechis. And that's why I cannot wait to be able to have a showing of Wilmington on fire at the United Nations so that people can see yeah, some of That's what right. I have been arguing the point for in right. these thirty plus years of the work that I've been doing for our people. Yeah. So that's why I want to salute you for even having this radio broadcast right. to expose more of the world to right. what is going what has gone on and what's going on right now. Yeah. Well thank you, my sister. And for those of you who are listening, Queen Kuet is a historian and the chiefest of the Gula Geechee Nation. And for those of you who do not know the Gullah Geechee people are threatened by deep pocket, big developers on the East Coast. Some are having problems proving their ownership to the land and that was passed on from one generation without written wills. Others have migrated to other places in the country um, and where they try to keep their culture intact and they are led by Queen Kuet and are trying to save our unique culture. And they want to yes. be recognized as a nation and to have self-determination. Uh, let's go back to Kwanzaa, Kuchajakalia, yes. self-determination, similar to the status of Indian tribes. And in 2006, the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Carter was established by the National Park Service in an effort to preserve... No, it was not by the National Park Service. It wasn't by the National Park Service. What was it by? No, ma'am. In 2006, the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Act, which I fought for for nine years, was passed by U.S. Congress and Mm -hmm. signed into law by then-President George W. Bush. The Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor Commission, which I served on as an expert commissioner and the chair of the general management plan, was a part of the United States Department of the Interior. The National Park Service is also a part of the United States Department of the Interior. Then the Bureau of Indian Affairs is a part of the Department of the Interior. What the National Park Service did was a propaganda campaign to make people believe that it was under them. It's not under them. And uh-huh. it, because what it is is there is a cultural heritage corridor, 
which is a national heritage area, which is a grassroots effort. It goes grassroots up instead of top down from the federal government like NPS parks. So it's not the same thing. And okay. it runs through the Gullah Geechee Nation. And in fact, I don't know if your listeners know, but when the Gullah Geechee Cultural Heritage Corridor came into existence, it became the first corridor in the United States history to focus on people of African descent. There were 36 others. We became the 37th and the first one to deal with black history and black culture, especially that was still alive. Now, the National wow. Park Service has a number of sites, but they had never had a National Heritage Corridor dealing with a black culture before the one we fought for and won. Wow. And it was won because of the efforts of the Gullah Geechee Sea Island Coalition, supporters like y'all that were at Afro-Am and numerous other folks coming together in a grassroots effort to pressure the U.S. Congress to do something to help the Gullah Geechee culture. Well, I just want to know, I haven't, I haven't talked to you or communicated with you in a very long time, but in 2006 when I saw that, I said, yes. that woman was the power. Thank you so <laughs> Listen, much. Listen, we're, 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 so we're running out of time, and I've got one more caller that I want to get to, but you've got to come to Our Common Ground in February. Will do. Will do. I, we'll I would set it up. love Peace to have you. you. Blessings Thank to you, my Peace sister. and blessings to all so of y'all. Harambe. Harambe. Yes. Harambe. Absolutely. Harambe. Yes. Okay, we're going to take one more call real quick. 314, you're on the air. I respect you. Thank you for your call. Well, I respect you, too. Well, I usually say things that people make people mad. Now, you know what? That lady just got through talking about is really authentic. Uh, they identify themselves as being a Pacific group. And they have a legal claim. Uh, not only, and also the people in Georgia, that Harris Neck, where uh, they own land that they let the United States government use for an airstrip back in World War II. And after everything was done, they didn't give the land back. But uh, I don't think that, I think they should go out there as being Gullah Geechee. Uh, the rest of blacks in America are not going to identify with that. That's where these problems come. you got blacks in America say they're Hebrews, like, say they're Moors, and so on and so on and so on. And we always want to try to include everybody. Everything that's black is not black. There's a difference between black and also black, adject, adjective black African American. Another point, reparation. Blacks as we like to use the term, is not going to get reparations from the U.S. Congress the way they're going after it. For the one simple reason, what have they got to leverage for it? Now, you said you looked at 12 years a slave. Now, I don't know what you got mad at in that movie, but when you was told in the movie, when Patsy picked 512 pounds of cotton a day, the average was 200 pounds. Patsy Master paid $600 for her. Now, at that point in time in history, 1839, when the Confederacy was rising and trying to get Britain to come in on their side, Davis burnt 12 million bales of cotton. I believe it was in Atlanta. It was called a cotton phantom. It caused cotton to go from 10 cents a pound up to a dollar about a dollar eighty cents a pound. So, how much was Patsy 
producing. She was producing over $300,000 a year, plus the United States government taxed raw cotton. Those are the basis of your reparations on the tax. It's not the fact that it was mean. It's not the fact that it was terrible. It's not the fact. Those are emotional issues. No, you cannot argue emotion in a court. I didn't. You got to show damage. I'm not saying you. Uh-huh. And I participated I, I in the sad. Millions for Reparation March in D.C. and the Indaba sessions that was begun by uh, Minister Farrakhan. All those was good. But yeah. the court came back when Ms. Pellman sued in the Tenth Circuit, since Tenth Circuit Appeal Court, when she was suing against, you know, the corporation. They dismissed it, and luckily they dismissed it with prejudice, which means that you can bring it up again. But your, mm-hmm. what you use today is not good enough. Yeah. Well, my brother, I'm so glad that you um, were able to outline to us uh, and put all of this in in context. We're running out of time, and and I'm hoping that you will call back. If I get calls like yours, I might go back to five days a week doing radio because we could talk of a storm. (laughs) Yeah, we could. Yeah. But uh, maybe I can try to get back on sometime. I really appreciate what you're doing, and I hope that movie that movie is a success. Yeah, I really Oh, do. thanks, man. I appreciate also. it. Yeah. Thank you for your call. Christopher and Larry, Christopher Everett and Larry Thomas, thank you so very much. Thank you. Uh, thank we want to stay on top of what's happening with this film. Um, I am contemplating going back to uh, five days a week. I, I, I cannot do what I am called to do once a week. I've been doing this for about two years now, and it's not as satisfactory as I would like it to be. You're doing an excellent job. (laughs) Thank you. We wish you so much good for this film. And anything that we can do, we thank you. Chris, give us the – Christopher, I keep calling you Chris. Christopher, give (laughs) us the website. It's www.wilmingtononfire.com. Is that yeah, correct? go to Wilmington, WilmingtonOnFire.com, or if you're on Facebook, definitely hit us up on Facebook, Facebook.com slash WilmingtonOnFire. Hit us up on Twitter at Wilmington1898, and we're going to have the film ready by May. Okay. And Larry Thomas, what yeah. is the title of your book? And where uh, I, have two, I have two books, actually. One is called The True Story Behind the Wilmington Tent. And the other one is called Rabbit, 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 a fictional account of the Wilmington 10 incident of 1971. And to me, the, the Wilmington 10 incident of 1971 was black retaliation for what happened in 1898. That's my key. Mm. Mm-hmm. Well, you brothers, I thank you so very much. So much respect from us at Our Common Ground. And uh, I think maybe about uh, mid-April you should yeah. be coming back to tell us where we are. Well, thank you so much. Sounds good. Sounds good. And also to the brother that just called, um, you know, he made some excellent points, and that was one of the reasons why I got Dr. Claude Anderson um, in mm-hmm. the film, because he really breaks down that economic aspect, especially with slavery. He really breaks it yep. down, because I wanted As people to actually fact, know. We're going we're yeah. to go out to break uh, with, with his uh, clip and uh, come back, and we're going to be doing a tribute to Amiri Baraka. Christopher Everett, Larry Thomas, 
The film is Wilmington on Fire. It's www.wilmingtononfire.com. Like them on Facebook and find them on Twitter. I'm Janice Graham, and you can find me at Our Common Ground on Facebook and in our event uh, tonight, all the information you need to have about this film. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. I'm going to put you on mute so you can listen to the rest of this broadcast. This is Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. We'll be right back. Almost 100% of all this nation's wealth, resource, privileges, and controls all levels of government into the hands of the dominant white society. And it was very effective. It did an excellent job. And slavery, slavery came into existence in the 1500s. It had a very specific purpose. Slavery was an economic issue, not a social issue. And so black folk learned that even as slaves, they might not have been well-educated, but they weren't stupid. They figured out that he who owns and controls has the power. And so when slavery ended in the 1860s, by 1866, at that point in time, you had, they learned something about some of the radical Republicans who came out and said that, you, that black people in America can only be two, two, one or two things. Either you're going to be slaves or you're going to be free. Oh, right. It's still dead. The business community and the community is still dead. Blacks in Wilmington are still dead. So what was the use in a park for us to just sit and remember? I want to remember, but I also want to progress to the future. Blood everywhere. A massacre. This is our common ground, and we are not anonymous. Speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Six story, an American dream turned nightmare. What the federal government wanted in a software package and customizing that for them. I mean, we were we were catering. I don't think you're gonna find another company that's gonna cater any software package to that extent. We were trying to do our best to make sure we gave them the best software package we possibly could. I mean, so it just seems ironic. You're you're bending over backwards to make sure that everything works and that you have the best software you can have, and then you get raised. Well, and you have to go back to the fact we have made numerous trips to the Department of Homeland Security, uh, ultimately, ultimately leading up to the point where they had actually took numerous quotes from us for different component modules of the software, leading up to a $70 million quote to, uh, to, to be uh, put into the 2005 budget. So, and then all of a sudden, it's, it's February 2005. All this stuff is so ironic. It's February 2005. We're getting ready to go into the DHS budget, and then all of a sudden, we get raided. And it's just, even to this day, it's very frustrating with all of the changes we made, all of the modifications that we made to the software, that even to the point of taking DHS recommendations on our fully functional client service. Next week on Our Common Ground, the case 
of the IRP6 next Saturday, January 25th. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. We hope you'll join us speaking truth to power and ourselves. And we thank you for being with us. We are especially thankful to our callers uh, from North Carolina and other places across the country uh, about this film, about reparations, and about domestic racial terrorism in America. Thank you for being with us. We hope you'll join us next week as we talk about the IRP-6 case. And I hope that you have a good King Day. I'm Janice Graham. This is Our Common Ground. And don't forget, TruthWorks Network at Blog Talk Radio, sponsored by Our Common Ground. And we say to uh, each of you, if you do not know, if you do not know about Martin Luther King Jr. or Amiri Baraka, you haven't done your homework. You are not ready, and therefore, you will not have an end game. I'm Janice Graham. Thanks for being with us. See you next week. Somebody blew up America. All thinking people oppose terrorism both domestic and international. But one should not be used to cover the other. Somebody blew up America! They say it's some terrorist, some barbaric Arab in Afghanistan. It wasn't our American terrorists, it wasn't the Klan, or the skinheads, or the them that blows up nigger churches or reincarnates us on death row. It wasn't Trent Lott or David Duke or Giuliani or Shunla Helms retiring. It wasn't the gonorrhea in costume, the white cheat diseases that have murdered black people, terrorized reason and sanity, most of humanity as they pleases. They say, who say, who do the saying? Who is in pain? Who tell the lies? Who in disguise? Who had the slaves? Who got the bucks out the bucks? Who got fat from plantations? Who genocided Indians? Tried to waste the black nation? Who live on Wall Street, the first plantation? Who cut your nuts off? Who rape your mom? Who lynch your pop? Who got the tar, who got the feathers, who had the match, who set the fires, who killed and hired, who say they God, still be the devil. Who the biggest only, who the most goodest, who do Jesus resemble, who created everything, who the smartest, who the greatest, who the richest, who say you ugly and they the good looking is, who define art. Who defined science? Who made the bombs? Who made the guns? Who bought the slaves? Who sold them? Who call you them names? Who say Dama wasn't insane? Who, 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 who? Who stole Puerto Rico? 
Who stole the Indies, the Philippines, Manhattan, Australia, and the Hebrides? Who forced opium on the Chinese? Who owned them buildings? Who got the money? Who think you funny? Who lock you up? Who owned the papers? Who owned the slave ship? Who run the army? Who was the fake president? Who the ruler? Who the banker? Who the devil on the real side? Who got rich from Armenian genocide? Who the biggest terror? You've been listening to Our Common Ground. Thank you for tuning in tonight. I'm Janice Graham. And join us on TruthWorks Network, Wednesdays and Fridays with Soul of Fire and The Alpha Show. You can find Our Common Ground on Facebook, on Tumblr, on Pinterest, and Twitter at Janice OCG. If it's Saturday at 10 p.m., I'll be listening for you. We rush into battle. We're soldiers. We get hurt in the fight. We suck it up and we hold it down. Like it or not. So I'm not asking you for the truth. I know the truth. So what I'm asking you is, what is your end game? We, the children of Shaka Zulu, we are gladiators. 